So it's Pentecost Sunday today, and we're going to read from Acts 2, the event of Pentecost in Luke's narrative of the Acts of the Apostles. Acts 2, verses 1 through 14, and then we're going to skip around a little bit. This is God's Word. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mockingly said, they are filled with new wine. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This Jesus God raised up, and of all that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. What was Pentecost? Pentecost was the yearly festival counting 50 days after the Passover feast. When Jews came into Jerusalem from all over the world in order to celebrate and give thanks to God for the the grain harvest. It was a festival of giving thanks to God. But this particular uh, Pentecost festival, as you can see, is unique, it's special in redemptive history. And I want to share with you a story this morning to illustrate what is going on. My senior year at college in the University of Tennessee, uh, two friends and I were the recipients of what was objectively the best apartment in all of Knoxville, okay? It was in the heart of Knoxville in kind of the trendy part called the Old City. And our particular apartment was on the fourth floor, the top floor of a building 
that was about 400 yards from the intersection of the old city. At that intersection, bands would play, uh, street vendors would gather, crowds would, you know, it was the hustle and bustle of the city. And our apartment was awesome. It was big, it was, you know, it was had exposed brick, it was, you know, uh, open. But the best feature of the apartment is that the roof of the building was our deck. And so at night, we could climb the little stairwell in the kitchen, we could open the hatch, and we could sit out on that deck and watch the life of the city go by. We were the recipients of that apartment because it was handed down year by year by members of my fraternity. But also with that apartment came a tradition that was handed down as well. Hidden away in one of the closets next to the kitchen was a massive homemade slingshot, okay? And kids, if just to sort of prick your imagination, uh, imagine a slingshot so big that it took three people to operate it, two to stand on the side, and one person to pull back the rubber band. So why would college students need a slingshot that large in a building like that? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> because that was the only way, a slingshot that big, to launch water balloons far enough from the roof of our building to land square in the middle of the old city intersection on a busy night where many young couples, perhaps in their first dates, you know, visitors to the city, patrons were walking by and surely needed something to spice up their night, a memory to tell, right? You may also be wondering how a tradition like this was able to maintain itself over the years. How was it possible that this got handed down and we were able to do this on occasion without ever getting caught? You know, part of the fun was launching the balloons and then running downstairs to watch the frantic search for where they came from. And just got to tell you that um, over the years when we saw it happen, our building was never searched. We would watch as all the other buildings were searched, but they never, ever, ever suspected our building because it was thought to be too far away. Our building was thought to be beyond the range that anyone expected. I hope the statute of limitations is up this morning, by the way. <laughs> is, this conf- is this covered under confidentiality, pastor, congregation? Now, what does that have to do with Pentecost? I want you to think about Pentecost this morning as God's launching point, as God's launching point. Pentecost is the moment in human history when the enthroned Jesus Christ pulls back the slingshot, so to speak, and he launches the movement of his kingdom out into the world. In Pentecost, in the launching of Christ's kingdom, so Luke tells us throughout Acts, it goes further than anyone, even his own followers, expected. So that a man like Paul is hit by the power of Jesus Christ and he is almost immediately transformed from an adversary of the gospel to its first global missionary. A man like Peter is hit by the power of Jesus Christ and he founds himself where he never considered himself to be, in the house of an unclean Gentile, all of a sudden in communion and fellowship with people that historically have been kept apart. The community that gathers on the heels of this sermon is hit by the power of Jesus Christ so that they meet every day. And Luke tells us they sold their possessions and all the material things that they had so that they were able to give the proceeds away to all those who had need. Pentecost is the launching point of Jesus' kingdom, and when it hits people, it is no warm blanket. It's more like getting hit by cold water. It's disruptive, it is challenging, it is wide-ranging in its ability to transform and to raise up and to reconcile. So where does that power lie? Wherein lies the power 
of Pentecost. It's clear this morning in the passage where the power does not lie. Just remember where the early church is at this point. They don't have any numbers. They're small. The early church is not politically connected, nor are they culturally sophisticated. Most couldn't read or write. They're not even moral exemplars at this point in history. Remember, the leaders of the movement had just abandoned their hero to suffer the the cruel fate and humiliating fate of death on a cross. So where does the power lie? At this moment for men and women who will soon be launched to change the course of history forever. Two sources from this passage. One is the Spirit of God, and the other is the Gospel of God. The Holy Spirit and God's Holy Gospel. The early church father Irenaeus called those the two hands of God, God's Spirit and His Word. Let's look at both of those for us this morning in the passage. First, the Spirit of God. A little background and lead up to this scene in Acts 1.8, Jesus addresses His remaining disciples right before He ascends into heaven. And Tommy mentioned this this morning, but these are His last words. Here's what He prepares them for in Acts 1.8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. I mentioned earlier that Pentecost was the festival where all the Jews gathered to give thanks to God for his harvest provisions. Well, it's no wonder then that Jesus marks that occasion by gathering his people for a gift that will commemorate a new harvest. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit for the harvest of the nations. The gift of the Holy Spirit for the harvest of the nations. Now with that in mind, you can see why the tongues of fire in the passage are so significant. If you'll recall, the setting is that Jews have come from all over the nations, all over the world really, to Jerusalem. And because of that, none of them, they all spoke those native tongues. There was no common language among them. And so what does the Spirit do? The Spirit cancels the language barrier. The Spirit undoes or lifts the curse of Babel. Remember your Bible way back in Genesis 11. The curse of Babel that confused languages because of human rebellion. And he lifts that curse so that now each person can hear the gospel, can hear the mighty works of God in a way that makes sense to him or to her. Why is that important? It's important because it proves the intent and the scope of Jesus' power. That is to say that the Spirit has been given not just to do awesome things. The Spirit has been given to continue the work that Jesus started in a Bethlehem manger. The Spirit is given to heal the world's deafness to God and to reconcile the world both to God and to cancel the barriers between cultures and social conventions that keep us apart. What Jesus' followers would have known from this experience is that to have the Holy Spirit is as good as having the ascended Jesus personally with them at that moment. To have the Holy Spirit was as good as having Jesus himself. So that now Jesus is never personally absent, 
nor are his followers ever missionally helpless. No matter the circumstances, no matter the outward balance of power, the enthroned Christ is with them and working through them. There's a movie scene that sticks out to me from my childhood. I think it's probably one of the classic movie scenes from the 80s. It's from Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Somewhere in the middle of the movie, Indiana is running through the streets of Cairo for his life. That could be the whole movie probably, but he gets lost in a crowd. And all of a sudden, if you remember, the crowd parts and standing there is a Goliath-like figure who is clothed in black. And he is brandishing this huge curved sword. You remember? And he does all these amazing sword tricks. I mean, clearly he is the one who is equipped for a duel. He was born to fight in a moment like this. Don't know where he came from. Don't know whose side he's on. But he shows up and he's ready. And he does all these impressive sword tricks. He's huge. In Indiana, do you remember what happens? He looks at him and he pulls the gun out of his holster and he shoots him. There, game over. He just falls down. What's the lesson in the movie? In a sword fight, you want to be the one holding the gun, right? In a sword fight, you want to be the one holding the gun. The gift of the Holy Spirit means that in your struggle against sin, in your struggle against evil in the world, you are the one holding the gun. You have the power of the ascended Jesus Christ who is with you, the risen Christ who is with you, personally to fight for you. And it sounds romantic this morning and you're thinking maybe I don't feel like that. I feel weak and I feel helpless and I feel overwhelmed. Anything but empowered. And the Apostle Paul knew that paradox well. He writes about that paradox in 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul came to an important realization. He says that the Spirit's work was given not to make him feel strong. That's really important. Spirit wasn't given to make him feel strong. The Spirit was given to keep him dependent on God because here's what Paul realized. When he was most dependent, when he was most vulnerable, when he was most experientially weak, then and only then the power of Christ was most palpable and demonstrative and sufficient in his own life. Paul learned that it was important for him to lean into his weakness instead of trying to cover it up and hide it because in his weakness is where he really experienced the power of the ascended Jesus. In Christ, you have the gift of the Spirit so that though you are weak, so that though we are weak, we are strong. Strong to be whom God has called you to be. Strong to do exactly what God has called you to do. Strong your dependence on Him. You have the Spirit, the same Spirit at Pentecost. But you also have a message, what the New Testament writers call the Gospel. That's what Peter talks about here in his sermon. We've kind of condensed it here to see the main points. So what is the Gospel? If you've been around Christianity, you know we we use that word a lot. We don't explain it very often, but we use it a lot. Well, let me try to summarize it for you this morning. The gospel is the good news that God has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, God has fulfilled the death that we owe him for our sin. And Jesus himself now sits exalted on the throne of heaven. 
to work his salvation and renewal out into the world. The gospel is the good news that Jesus has fulfilled all that God has ever required of you. So that nothing less is required from you to be absolutely cherished and accepted and loved by him. You can think of it this way. You know, we use the word fulfillment a lot to talk about what we're after in life. We talk about wanting to be fulfilled. That we want a, fuf- you know, a fulfilling marriage, a fulfilling job, a fulfilling personal life. What do we mean when we say that? What does it mean to be fulfilled? What it means is that we come to a place where we no longer need more. We no longer need more affirmation. We no longer need more achievement. We no longer need more money. It means all that we have is now sufficient for all that we've needed. Friends, the message that lights the world on fire from Acts 2 is that in Jesus, there is no longer a need for more. There is no longer a need for more of a Savior. There is no longer a need in your life for more of a friend or confidant. There is no longer a need for more of a priest. No longer a need for more of a shepherd. No longer a need for more of a king. In all of your need, the sufficiency of Jesus is able to meet you where you are this morning. Listen to me. Do you notice in the sermon, if you just kind of glance at it, that there's no application? Isn't that kind of frustrating if you're listening to a sermon sometimes? I mean, there's no application. The people have to run to Peter afterwards and say, tell us what to do. You haven't told us anything. And Peter says, repent and believe. Why? Because the gospel is not about you. The gospel is about receiving what is done for you, what has been finished for you, and living in that joy in all of your life. One of my favorite sports stories is a story that ESPN ran a few years ago about a Philadelphia sports fan named Lionel. So Lionel lost his job and um, was hopeless, hard to get Lionel down, his friends say, but this really kind of got him down and couldn't find a job. It was in 2009, tough job market. And so Lionel used his free time to basically borrow or maneuver or finagle his way into every Philadelphia sporting event that he could. Seems like a good use of your free time, right? That's what Lionel did. So um, Lionel was at the World Series that year. The Phillies were in the World Series. And in game five, the Phillies were up at home three games to one. The score score was tied two to two. And Lionel had free tickets along the left foul pole sideline. Pretty good tickets. Well, the rain came down and it, it postponed that game, tied two to two. And so they gave rain checks to everyone for the game two nights later. And Lionel came back two nights later and somehow snuck his way down into the, into the Diamond Club, which was two rows behind home plate. So there he is, Philadelphia, you know, Philly's fanatic, uh, two rows behind home plate on a free ticket. When the game was over, the Phillies won that game 4-3, to three, and thus they won the World Series. And when the game was over, Lionel notices a guy who's walking down towards the dugout with a suit on, and he figures, this guy looks important, so he kind of slinks his way behind the guy. And all of a sudden, he is through a gate in a room next to the dugout with all the baseball executives, with Bud Selig, the commissioner, and there is the World Series trophy, and without, he can't, it doesn't even have time to do anything. They're ushering the whole crowd out there on the field. And so Lionel finds himself on the field with Bud Selig and all the players, and 
And they're handing out championship t-shirts. The Bat Boys are throwing out t-shirts to those on the field. And so Lila puts a t-shirt on. He's 5'8", 240, doesn't belong, but, you know, put a t-shirt on. And a Hawaiian woman comes and hands out lays, and so all of a sudden Lionel has a lay on as well. That's when Chase Utley, one of the Philly stars, turns to Jimmy Rollins and other stars and says, let's go celebrate. And Lionel does what any of us would do on that occasion. He says, I am in. (laughs) And Lionel follows that celebration down into the clubhouse. And there his friends can see him on TV, and he's spraying multi-million dollar athletes up the nose with champagne. I mean, he's in the thick of it. He headbutts one player. And his friend says he goes and he gives uh, Jamie Moyer a kiss on the cheek and, and he says, thank you. And Jamie kisses him back and says, no, thank you, whoever you are. <laughs> and his buddies can see all this going down on TV. And they can't believe it. Because there is their friend Lionel, out of work, in the midst of a clubhouse celebration, the biggest celebration in the city that night, and he has done nothing at all to earn his place there. By no merit of his own, he has contributed nothing to their championship, and yet there he is having the time of his life as if he belonged there all along. Friends, that's the message that the gospel holds out to the world on a much grander scale. And in Jesus Christ, we are welcomed into a joy that we have not earned. We are welcomed into the celebration of a king that we have not trusted. We are welcomed into a relationship with the Father that we have not loved. And yet all of this through no merit of our own, but squarely by the fulfillment wrought for us in Jesus Christ, we are there as if we belong there all along. And what power does a message have like that when it hits the ancient world? (laughs) What was the power of joy? One famous Christian missionary put it like this, he says, Mission always begins with an explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive cannot possibly be suppressed. Who could be silent about such a fact? The mission of the church in the pages of the New Testament is more like the fallout from a vast explosion of joy than it is obedience to a command. In other words, if there is a failure in us, to be active in mission. If there is any failure in us to be active in our spiritual lives, it's, be, look, it's not because we're not trying hard enough. It's because our hearts have lost something of the sheer wonder and joy of being loved and cherished and welcomed by God by sheer grace alone. Luke says that when the people heard that message, they were cut to the heart. And they ran to him and said, what do we do? And and Peter and the rest said, look, turn to him, believe, be baptized, be associated with him. Turn to him and receive it. And they said, who is this for? And he said, you. And it's for your children who are at VBS next week. And you're on the Florida trip right now. And it's for all those who are far off. That is to say that no one is beyond the range of the power of God's grace in a life to transform them. That is the message we carry with us this morning. Wherein lies the power of the ascended Christ in your life? It does not lie in your status. It does not lie in how smart you are, or your achievement, or your political clout. It does not even lie in your moral uprightness. 
It lies in the gift of Jesus' Spirit who, though you are weak, makes you strong. And it lies in the message of the Gospel, the promise that Jesus has done all that is required of you for you to be accepted, loved, and cherished by God, by grace alone. Live in the joy of that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the power of Pentecost and to think that that was 2,000 years ago. Nothing has changed. That we have your spirit even now, though we feel weak often. We pray, O oh God, that you would teach us what it means to lean into our weakness, to obey you in our weakness, and to watch you work in our weakness, Father. We don't have to have it all together, gathered together. Our houses don't have to be perfectly clean, and we don't have to look right, Father, that you are strong in all the places we feel out of touch and weak. We pray, O oh God, in the same vein, that you would, Father, center our hearts once again on the glory of being loved by you through the fulfillment wrought in Jesus Christ. Help us to know that joy. Help us to taste it, even as David said, the joy of our salvation once again. And then, Lord, we pray that you would launch us out in the world to love and serve well. In Jesus' name, amen.